A new poll shows that British Columbians are perhaps a bit more optimistic compared to uh, those in other provinces in Canada when it comes to our finances and looking ahead to the economic future. Let's check in now with the president of Insights West, which did this study. Steve Mossop joins us on the line now. Steve, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning. Happy to be here. What did you ask people about economic confidence and looking forward? Over the last seven years, we've tracked this uh, every year, and we found that this year, out of the, the number that we polled, is the highest rating we've ever seen. So we have 64% of BC residents who describe the economic conditions in Canada as good or very good, which is the highest rating in all of Canada. And you look at our neighbours uh, to the east of us in Alberta, it's about double the number that we see over there. And uh, did they say why that we, we're ha- we have such a rosy picture for BC? You know, we, we've been tracking uh, issues now, again, for the same time period. And even though we're, we're not very happy with our housing situation, uh, we're, we have a positive outlook. There's jobs, there's in-migration, uh, the economy is growing faster than the rest of Canada for the most part. So it's been really a good news story for a, a number of years. And so looking at, so, uh, breaking it down then, uh, was there a difference between people looking at their own personal situation, be it uh, their finances, looking ahead uh, job-wise, compared to how people felt for the country as a whole? There is, and we always see this where, where people feel that they are doing better than, say, their neighbours. So we have about 71% who say that their personal financial situation is good or very good, and that breaks out to 60% good and 11% very good. And pessimism is limited to about 26% who, who rate their situation as poor or very poor. And that, that also is the highest rating we've seen by a few points. So uh, as a whole, um, you know, it's a, sort of a good news story on the one hand, but we do have uh, some clouds on the horizon coming, that's for sure. Hmm. What uh, province then was uh, the, the least optimistic? The least optimistic is Alberta by a long shot. You know, the rest of the country... Uh, is, you know, three to ten points stay behind us. Uh, there is an anomaly in Quebec, at least in, in English-speaking Quebec, where we did the poll, and they have a rating that's a couple points higher than us. But Alberta's been suffering for a couple of years with low oil prices, and you really see it in the numbers. You know, we're less than half the numbers, uh, you know, 35% who say that the economic conditions are good there. So we're really quite lucky compared to our neighbours next to us. Uh, were you surprised at all that the number was so high for household finances? Because we do often talk about, especially in, in Metro Vancouver, how uh, the price of housing is so expensive, how gas is so expensive, uh, the things that many people need to live their daily lives. Were you surprised that it was still... Yeah, I was, because, I mean, I think as, as humans, we tend to look at the pessimistic side, and we have story after story over the uh, the last several years about housing and lack of affordability. We've seen any our own firm has done poll after poll on that. But to have 71% of the province say that, that, that things are good for them personally, that's, uh, those are some impressive numbers. And what about, um, you also looked at career, and it was a pretty low number of people, uh, in BC at least, that, uh, that feel that there is a promotion on the horizon. Yeah, promotions uh, are, are fairly low. So we have about 15% who say that they expect that in the next year. We uh, see higher numbers, 28%, who, who will get a raise next year. So there's, and that's as high as it's ever been. So we do have, uh, on the same time, people personal finances are good. You typically see in economic conditions that are good, but people don't move careers very much. Right. So it's not, not unusual in that respect. And what was it? Was it 17% they expect a decline when it comes to their 
Oh, that's how, how, sorry. That was household finances. I was thinking that was that was jobs, which seemed odd to me. But uh, there, mm. so household finances uh, still. That, I guess that's on the, the pessimistic side. Yeah, we have three and five Canadians overall that expect their household finances to stay the same over the next six months. Twenty percent say an improvement and seventeen percent decline. So that is that is sort of uh, as I was saying earlier. There's a bit of cloud on the horizon when you see that kind of number expecting a decline. And if you look at the overall economy, here's where it really gets a little bit scary. A significant number of Canadians, you know, 43% feel that the economy will decline in the next six months. And that's, that's five times the number who think the economy will improve at eight. So that's, uh, that's typically what we see in a pre-recession environment where you've got some uh, pretty significant pessimism when it comes to the future. Hmm. And I guess it doesn't go into to why such a large number thinks that, that they, the economy as a whole is, is going to decline. No, uh, we don't get into the whys in this particular one because it's really uh, almost a report card poll of, of where people feel. But in other polls that we've done, there is concern. Um, you get a hint of it here with uh, concerns about their investment. So, you know, 35% or sorry, 67% say that they're worried about their uh, value of investments in the future. Uh, 59% say that they're worried about the safety of their savings in the future. So there is uh, there is definitely some concern. Those numbers are are creeping up. And 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 then going in that one too, in the spending, thirty seven percent say that they're worried about is it being able to pay the mortgage or, or the rent. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the number where you know the the housing crisis comes back to us. Or thirty seven percent. Thirty seven percent of British Columbians feel that they are worried frequently or occasionally about being able to pay their mortgage or their rent. Hmm. That's a pretty pretty big number. It is, although still, I, it's, a, it's a drop from from the last time that you did, or is it about the same as the last time uh, you did that this? One, that one is is uh, a little bit higher. It's about four points higher, but it's not as high as what you would think it would be, given what we've gone through the last couple of years. No, it, it, indeed, uh, indeed, it is. Uh, any other findings in here that that you were surprised at, uh, being that you do track it uh, year to year? Um, the one that jumped out at me is that. You know, people in Canada love to travel. Maybe it's because the winter Canadians have had. We've got 33% who, who are likely to take an overseas holiday this year. And that's gone up from, you know, looking back two years ago, 25%. So there is that. And in BC, we've seen a measurable slowdown in things like uh, doing a home renovation or buying a new home. So those numbers definitely have dropped. And that's maybe not a surprise as you've seen the, the housing market slow down in the last uh, six months. No, and what was it? It's only 8% to say that they'll be purchasing a new home within the next six months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those numbers are dropping. Uh, which I guess makes sense, too. If you're looking at as a whole, if people think that, that the economy is, is going, to, to da- going on a downward trend, uh, then it, do you think maybe it's people waiting that out or waiting to see what's, what's happening with that before they make a huge there, purchase? There is, and typically when we see people looking ahead and seeing a downward trend, you see measurable changes in the things that they plan to do, like uh, buying a new vehicle or electronic appliances. But we haven't seen as, as big of a drop as one would expect. Usually those plummet when you, when you see pessimism on the horizon, but I think it's a little bit early yet. Maybe in six months, we'll, if the recession does come to pass, then uh, we will see those numbers decline a lot. Hmm. All right. Well, very interesting findings, and um, people can look at them. Uh, can they go? Can they, if they want to read more about the findings, uh, can they find it on your website? Yes, they can find it on the website, and it's all broken down. And you can look at differences between, you know, different age categories and income categories. It's all there. All right, uh, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time this morning. 
Thank you, Jill. Well, a tweet that Global News reporter Janet Brown sent out a few days ago got a lot of response. It was about people blasting through stop signs. She mentioned she's seeing more and more people rolling through stop signs as well. Uh, People from all around Metro Vancouver tweeted back saying, yeah, it's not just in your neighborhood. It happens in my neighborhood, too. I tweeted out that I see it all the time, too, when walking, people going through intersections. It's as though they're not really paying attention. So are we seeing the decline of common sense when it comes to drivers on the road? Uh, We're joined now by Steve Wallace. He is the owner of Wallace Driving School. Steve Wallace, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for getting me up so early in the morning. (laughs) Well, thanks for doing that. Uh, What do you say? Are you surprised at all that talking about this, uh, that people were uh, very passionate about uh, joining this conversation saying, we see people running red lights, rolling through stop signs. It seems to be happening more and more. Um, It's not happening as of late more and more, but it's happening because we have more vehicles on the road. So when we have young students who are going through our graduated licensing course, we have a part of it where they stand on an intersection, by an intersection, and they, they're inconspicuous as a group and stand off to the side so they can't be seen by vehicles approaching. At a four-way stop, only one in 20 people actually come to a legal stop. And stop seems to mean squeal tires on pavement rather than come to a complete stop. So people are lazy. Um, They don't seem as though they want to stop. If they don't see any danger, they're more apt to simply glide to a slow, uh, poor excuse for a halt and then slide through. But there's another element to this as well. I mean, the people in municipal government are putting up too many signs. There are stop signs where you're at a T intersection coming out of a a cul-de-sac on a nondescript road, which would more more likely govern a yield sign. I mean, we're into a situation where you want to reduce the carbon footprint, but most of the people in municipal government seem to want to increase it by by a mandatory stop sign where one should probably not exist. Hmm. That's an interesting. I hadn't thought of that, that there are too many signs. We also seem to be, uh, the few places I've seen where we have roundabouts, they just seem to cause a lot of confusion. At, at roundabouts, the crash rate and the death rate is down by 50% when, when used. People do get used to them. Uh, they work extremely well. Uh, there's three things about roundabouts. Number one, they keep the traffic moving, so they end the unnecessary stop that you're alluding to. Uh, they also uh, don't require any maintenance. So when you put up stop signs and you put up lights, a, a regular lighted intersection of the red and amber and green it's about 300 to 500 thousand dollars to install and then you have to maintain it what do you do with the traffic circle you paint some lines and sweep it off once a year so that that's the second reason for the uh the the reduction in crash rate but the also is everyone's moving at the same direction they're going the same direction there's no reason for a head-on crash you signal your intention to leave the roundabout i mean there's no necessity to signal to enter it if you wish to you can but those are three elements of a roundabout that reduce crashes significantly and we should be having many many more of them and dispense with this amazing sign assembly do you know that it costs 350 dollars for a stop sign assembly i I don't think people are aware of that no Um, you mentioned that number when your students are watching that only one in 20 people at a four-way stop one in 20 drivers actually come to a legal stop why is it do you think i mean you educate people on this why is it people think that that stop doesn't actually mean stop 
uh, no one else is around. So what's the point? That's what goes through their mind. But when I ask the students before we go out to do this little exercise, I'll say, how many do you think are going to stop? So, And their numbers are 14, 16, 11, 12. And they'll, they, they have these, these amazingly high numbers uh, with the 20 involved. And so when they get out there, they are very much offended. They, they, they ride their bike or they walk or they do other things because they don't have a license. But they just can't believe that that's the case. So, uh, and we do this, I, I should say, unencumbered. So it's not like people would stop because other drivers have the right of way. We only count the vehicles that come up to that four-way stop without other vehicles or pedestrians around. Right. Uh, because it's interesting you would say that, too, that people will go through because there's nobody else around. Uh, but but when we tweeted about this and, and had this conversation uh, on Twitter, uh, there were a lot of people, myself included, when I'm walking my dogs, I've, I've had times where I've had to pull the dogs back because somebody blasts right through. Yes, and the psychology of that is really simple. What damage can you do to that vehicle? Hardly any. <laughs> the fact is, what they're doing is the people in the vehicles are looking at things that they think will threaten them and that can do damage to them. They're completely and totally self-centered. You're just ancillary to the whole process. You don't even matter as a pedestrian walking your dog because you can't do any damage to them. They're looking for people in vehicles, larger vehicles, maybe a cement truck, maybe a bus, maybe someone, maybe a police car. They're looking out for a police car. Maybe that's the case. So you have these people that are somewhat these egomaniacs out there who will only react to people who can harm them. Uh, exactly. Um, one other one other thing I wanted to ask you, this was a, a global colleague who actually went in to try and get her class five road test. Uh, she uh, tweeted about this as well, saying she failed. She got an automatic fail and was told it was because she was being too cautious that she fell below 50 in a 50k zone. And because of that, uh, she was deemed too cautious, too careful and failed. Well, people in BC, the general public have no idea how difficult the BC road test is. Out of all 63 jurisdictions in North America, it is the most difficult, most comprehensive test on the continent. So when you go through that, if she Let's say she drops down uh, below 50, say she's going 42 or 40 or whatever, and she does that three times or four times during the test in the 50 zone, they'll fail that person for reasons they're holding traffic up. If you don't come to a complete stop three times or four times on the easier test routes, because they have six or eight test routes they use, uh, you will fail. If you go 34 in a 30 zone, that being a school zone or playground zone, you fail. If, in fact, you do any of these things, you're going to fail. And that may have no bearing on your care and control of the vehicle. It's just the sloppiness that people get by osmosis in the traffic system they experience every day. Hmm. Do you think, do the tests as they are right now, are we uh, putting out onto the roads drivers who are capable and have gone through the the right amount of testing to be safe drivers? Uh, The test is only one element. It's As I said, it's the most difficult test in North America. And people uh, of my age and people who have been driving for maybe 10 or 20, 20 years, they can't comprehend that the test is going to be so... Vi- I, I get parents that I taught in high school who come forward with their kids and say, hey, Steve, you know, here it's time for lessons and so on. And they will go through this process and they'll say, you know, when you taught me, 
it was like 15, 20 minutes. I, I, I did a parallel park. I went and parked on the hill. I, I came back and I, they gave me my license and it was, it was, it was easy. Mm-hmm. And then they see the test their kid has to go through and they go, my God, what have they done? And this is amazing. They, there's a, there's a whole scenario of things that I never thought they'd have to do. And, and they're not messing around. Uh, they do a, a bit of a five minute introduction and a debrief, but the test is extremely difficult. And I'll tell you now, I don't care who you are, NBC, if you're listening to this show. If we pulled 100 drivers off the road and said, oh, you're going to be tested this afternoon and brought them in for that road test, I'm telling you 95 would fail. Which is, which is frightening, really. And that goes to your point of why are they not stopping at stop signs? Why, why do they have an aversion to probably the best thing that would solve the environmental uh, stuff, but also the safety stuff? And that's, uh, that's traffic circles and roundabouts. So do you think, would, would they fail, though, because the test is too onerous or because drivers just have become a bit sloppy? Uh, they'll fail because drivers are sloppy, and it is the most difficult test in North America. Well, it's uh, fascinating uh, talking uh, to you about this. Uh, we will leave it there and, uh, I suppose, continue uh, dealing with drivers uh, that, uh, well, aren't the best drivers out there. Uh, but, Steve, thank you so much. Thanks for educating drivers, and we'll uh, chat with you again, I'm sure. Okay, thanks for having me on. Uh, shifting gears now, we are going to talk a little bit about real estate. And Steve Soretsky, who is a realtor in Vancouver, joins me on the line. Steve, great to have you back on the show. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on. Uh, talk of it, there was a, an article about uh, real estate and specifically it takes a look at some Stats Canada uh, data about uh, immigrants, recent immigrants and the real estate that they own and a bit of a difference when it comes to the price and the value of their homes. So what do you know about that or what's your response uh, saying that they're or what we're, what we're finding from this data is that uh, on average those homes are worth about a third more? Uh, I mean, it's not really surprising. Unfortunately, like Stats Canada uh, just started collecting the data. So we don't really have anything like historically to compare against. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it, obviously it's a work in progress. But I think that just like anecdotally, that that's generally what you see like on the ground. I mean, you know, how many buyers like locally, uh, you know, are, are snapping up, say, luxury homes on the west side of Vancouver? I mean, typically it tends to skew towards um, you know, a, a different demographic. I think there was obviously a lot of Chinese capital flight in 2015, 2016. Uh, and so that probably boosted some of the numbers. And, and and when we talk about that as well, how have things changed as far as I know you, you and I have talked about the detached home market and how that's really been cooling in Vancouver. Uh, what does that look like right now? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's still the same, still the same sort of trend, uh, just very, very few sales in the detached housing market. I think that, again, the prices are out of reach for most of a local market. Uh, and so when, when that money, you know, that Chinese money starts to pull back, I mean, you could certainly argue that China's economy is basically in a recession at this point. Uh, and so that really impacts our, our housing market. And so that's what we're seeing specifically at the high end. And then it has started to filter through down into the condos as well. And do you think the various taxes are having an impact or is it too early to show? I mean, Vancouver's had the empty homes tax, so we're now having the speculation, the so-called speculation tax uh, coming into some areas. Uh, do you think that uh, is also having an impact? Yeah, it's like we'll never be able to, to put our finger on and say, OK, well, the taxes, you know, caused home prices to fall X percentage. Uh, but I think they're definitely adding to what is like a global housing market flowdown. So all you have to do is look at you know, what's happening in Hong Kong's property market, China's property market, uh, you know, large parts of the U.S., they're all slowing 
uh, and you know, I would say prices are declining in a lot of those housing markets. So I think it's part of a, a global housing slowdown, but then when you add taxes, uh, such as we have, I think it just kind of exacerbates that downturn. And so what do you tell your clients then as far as what type of a market it is right now? Uh, I mean, it's definitely a buyer's market uh, in terms of like who has the upper hand, right? Uh, in terms of negotiations, uh, buyers have the, you know time to look through product, take your time, uh, submit lower offers and try to like, they can basically stick to you know their price and, and yeah, they basically have the upper hand in negotiation. So that's not something that we're used to because obviously the last few years have been like multiple offers and it's like whoever pays the most money gets the property, whereas now it's, uh, it's kind of the, the reverse. And do you, and that's been for a while now, hasn't it? Yeah, uh, for the detached housing market, it's probably been a year and a half, two years. Uh, condos ultimately topped out in sort of February, March of last year. And since then, it's, yeah, I would say the, the buyers have pretty much held the upper hand. And and uh, for sellers then, what, what does that mean for as far as, I, I guess people just have to be more careful about the price that they're offering and, and not expecting those multiple offers and things that we saw happening for such such a long time? Yeah, so I mean, I guess one of my concerns with, with sellers is obviously nobody knows for sure what what's going to happen with the housing market. Um, but I think there's definitely a lot of headwinds currently at play. And I think that, you know, people in Vancouver are always used to a good housing market. Like even in 2009, we had basically a nine-month housing, or 2008, we had a nine-month housing correction, and everything started to go back up in price. So there's that expectation as well. And so, you know, what we've seen in the detached housing market is people with unrealistic uh, listing asking prices, uh, and they, they they put it on, and it doesn't sell, doesn't sell, doesn't sell. They try it again at like maybe a slightly lower price. And then, you know, they'll, they'll take their house off the market for six months, put it back on. Meanwhile, the market continues to, to slide lower. So what they're ultimately doing is they're basically just chasing the market lower and lower and lower. And again, nobody knows where the market's going to go. But I think if you truly want to sell, I think you, you kind of have to get out of the, ahead of the market conditions. Right. And is that throughout Metro Vancouver and, or, or is it different depending on where in Metro Vancouver or the lower mainland you are? Uh, it sort of started, I guess, in the city core, uh, in terms of like the, the correction and it's has definitely spread out to all of the lower mainland. Um, you can even see like, it looks to me like the Fraser Valley is starting to play catch up their detached house sales, uh, dropped 50%, I think in January. So, um, yeah, it, it's pretty, pretty much slow across the lower mainland. 50% is quite a drop. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty significant. I mean, again, like, you know, the January numbers, I'm sure the board will release. But, you know, preliminarily, uh, we saw detached and condo sales for January slip to a 10-year low. So it's really hard to, to try to skirt around the numbers. I mean, they speak for themselves in terms of, uh, you know, where we are in our, in our housing market. And going forward, I know it's impossible to predict it, but there was some talk of 2019, we would see this cooling continue and then things start to rebound. And again, I know it's impossible to, to know that, but looking at the different factors as far as the various taxes and the measures that have been, that have been brought in to, to try and cool the market, is that do you think that's kind of a, a safe uh, prediction? Yeah, I, I think that uh, there's a lot of headwinds in place. Um, you know, yes, we have the taxes, but I think just uh, globally, I think things are just slowing down. And then uh, you have the the mortgage stress test, which, uh, if you sort of you know look at what policy policymakers are saying, and and some of them are public comments, uh, there doesn't really seem to be any desire to remove um, you know the stricter 
mortgage stress tests and basically just trying to clamp down on the housing market. And there doesn't really seem to be an appetite to remove that despite uh, a slowing housing market. All right, uh, Steve, we'll leave it there. Always great to chat with you and, and get the latest on what's happening in real estate. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. No worries. My pleasure. Take care. Well, the mayor of Vancouver is certainly pushing for SkyTrain to UBC, and he is pushing for funding for it and says if there are any red lights, that the project will probably be off the table. Well, my next guest might be pleased if that was to happen. Patrick Condon joins me on the line now, and he has written an opinion piece in the TIE with the title being, Am I the Last Voice Against SkyTrain to UBC? Thank you so much for coming on the program and talking more about this. Thanks, Jill. Glad uh, to be here. You uh, you talk in the piece about how this is a trigger for you and that uh, you uh, get pretty heated about this. Uh, what is it about this project that you find the most uh, the most offensive? Uh, well, it, the most offensive is not that I don't like the SkyTrain. It's that by buying into the SkyTrain continually, it means you can't do other things in the region because it's so expensive. It's it's quadrupled in price. In the past, uh, the Millennium Line, which this is an extension of, was $100 million per kilometer. This is $480 million per kilometer. So it basically drains our whole region of resources that could be used in other areas. The second point I would make for you is that uh, if we're concerned about getting student staff and faculty out to UBC, it's certainly a lot cheaper just to build housing out there at UBC for student staff and faculty but instead of doing that, the university insists on selling off the land that the people of B.C. actually own and taking the profits from that to uh, support the subway project. So for those two reasons and a number of others, I, I have a problem with it. Uh, you've written as well saying that, it, that it's not green, which, which goes against what one of the arguments for this is. Those are, who are proponents of this say it will get people uh, out of their vehicles and will move more people that way. Um, talk a bit, though, if you can, about your concerns about this not being a green project. Well, you know, my work is in uh, sustainable community design and largely I've done research on uh, green infrastructure and the costs of uh, the costs of the, the environmental costs of the things that we do. So one of the conclusions of that is spending a lot of money on a piece of infrastructure that's nominally green, like you think a subway is, is not really. Uh, an obvious one is that the, the amount of concrete that this takes is tremendous. But the larger point here is that we only have a limited amount of money to solve the environmental problems in our region and taking all of that money and putting it into something that only serves a very small area uh, is really not the right strategy. We really needed to spread that money around to solve the problem of of environmental sustainability throughout the region in places like Delta and Port Moody and wherever else, not just dump it into one line and to go out to the end of the peninsula. And that was one of my one of my concerns that I've brought up about this as well, is that even if this line was to go ahead and and we can all agree, I think, that the Broadway corridor is a very busy corridor, but there's nothing linking it north and south. And it's not as though people who are commuting to downtown or commuting east are going to bus to Broadway for the most part and then get on the SkyTrain. And there's and there's no way people on Arbutus are ever going to allow any kind of rapid transit going north south there. It does seem like it's very limited well it is very limited uh 
and that's that that's curiosity about it in in other parts of the world it would be considered ridiculous to to spend all that money to go out to the very end of a peninsula it makes no sense at all there is a demand area out there which is the university but as i've mentioned it could satisfy its demand internally without expecting the taxpayers of the rest of the region to pay for it a much a much simpler idea is to think of a distributed system throughout the region and i'm not one who thinks that the creme de la creme on arbutus can't be convinced to have a much more modest light rail system come through i've i've spoken extensively with the people on the west side of this city and i believe that uh, surface rail system is something that would be welcome and you kind of touched on this as well, but one of my questions has often been why we're not focusing also on connecting the valley, connecting Abbotsford and Chilliwack and connecting those areas to, to the downtown if people are choosing or or for no or have no other choice but to live in areas where the housing perhaps is a bit more affordable and finding options to, to move people in a more in a more um, efficient way. Yeah, that's the other ridiculous part of the whole thing is the whole transit uh, planning is very Vancouver-centric, as if the only only place in the world that needed services was the city of Vancouver. I mean, you know, I've also written about the possibilities south of the Fraser, where all the population growth is. The city of Vancouver is only growing at a half a percent a year, while the south of Fraser communities are growing at uh, 1.5% a year, which is twice that. And as you pointed out, it's largely because the housing is affordable out there, but they're all committed to the car because they have no option. Fortunately, there's a there's an old rail line out there called the Interurban Rail Line, which the province still retains the rights to use as a passenger rail. So that rather than the $1.6 billion that the Surrey mayor wants to now commit again to SkyTrain, a, a SkyTrain stub out to Fleetwood, I call it the Fleetwood Express, you could, for, for, for a fraction of that money, put a hydrogen-powered train on the interurban line all the way out to Chilliwack. Uh, and what about uh, the, the arguments with the uh, the Broadway line in particular, saying that if they were to go LRT or they were to go in a, another type of uh, transit, that it would be at capacity within 15, 20 years. Well, I, I frankly disagree. There's plenty of systems in, in Europe that have, that have uh, capacities of surface light rail that exceed 20,000 20, people per direction per hour, and the loads going out to UBC would never be that much unless you have tremendous condo development of tens of thousands of dwelling units, which is really what they're anticipating. The driver for this is the anticipation of unaffordable condos at the Jericho lands, at the UBC golf course, and at UBC itself, all of which will sell for over $2,000 a square foot, which puts them out of reach of students, staff, and faculty, that's for sure. Uh, What kind of response have you had to uh, this piece that you wrote? Oh, well, it's gotten 1,500 shares so far, so that indicates a lot. But uh, as the action in the council indicates, I think the average person in the city of Vancouver, and I understand this, you know, you ask the average person on the street, say, do you want a subway? And they say, yeah, why not? And, you know, they don't connect the opportunity costs. If I ask them if they want a pony, they say, yeah. I often ask my students that, that I teach at UBC, do you want a subway? And every hand goes up. And then I say, well, would you like free transit and uh, wireless on the bus and uh, cup holders for everybody? And they, they say, yeah, that would be good, too. And, you know, I mean, it, it's just an indication of the disconnect around uh, 
of course people want a subway if that's what's offered, but they're not given a choice, uh, a reasonable choice about something that would be far cheaper and far better for the region. If if our ambition is to attain sustainability by 2050, pouring all that money into one west side corridor and stimulating nothing but condo development while people are desperate for transit south of Fraser doesn't make sense to me. All right. We will leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. All right, Jill. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, we now have a confirmation. Uh, we got it earlier this morning from Surrey RCMP that day on Gordon Glasgow, the fugitive wanted in connection to a shooting at a Surrey Skytrain station, a shooting that injured a transit police officer on Wednesday, has now been arrested. We know he was arrested at 5.30 this morning by Surrey Mounties along with the Lower Mainland Emergency Response Team, the Lower Mainland Integrated Police Dog Service, Air One, as well as Burnaby RCMP. The arrest took places at a residence at the corner of Boundary and Rumble. Uh, we're joined now by Jim Sesford, who is a retired Delta police chief. And uh, Jim Sesford, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, thanks for having me, Jill. It's good to be here. Uh, we were originally going to talk about what it uh, might be like uh, with this fugitive still on the run. Uh, some breaking news this morning has shifted that a little bit, uh, but so glad you could join us. Uh, what is? What are your thoughts as being a retired police chief on the fact that the timing of how this happened and that an arrest was made this morning? Well, I think it's great that, they, that they've got this fella. Obviously, he's armed and dangerous. Uh, he's killed before. So he was very much of a risk to uh, to the public. And uh, uh, I know that the, the police went, um, uh, they t- left no stone unturned to try to, to catch this fella and, and get him back into custody. And good on them. A good job at getting him off the streets. Uh, any surprise that he was arrested in Burnaby? Because I think there was some idea that once he knew there was this warrant for his arrest, there was some idea that he would try to get a far, as far away as he could. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not surprised by that. Uh, he probably doesn't have many places to go outside of the lower mainland and certainly outside of the province. So generally what happens with these kind of cases, they'll stay close by. They'll try to, um, uh, you know, uh, get together with some associates and maybe stay with them and, uh, to, you know, to stay in their cover for some time. The danger with that is, and it's something I talked about the other day, is that if they're staying with friends or associates, those people also are uh, subject to uh, criminal charges as well for aiding in the abetting of fugitives. So um, I imagine not many people wanted them to be with them for any length of time. Well, and that's uh, that's what I would think, too. And this will likely come out. Uh, the details are just uh, breaking this morning. But whoever owns this house or whoever is associated with this house um, would now also be in a position where they're going to be questioned by police. So we're going to have to try and find out why, what connection uh, the the arrest <laughs> subject had to this residence. Well, absolutely. And uh, it, it will be very surprising if these uh, if these people, if in fact they were they were harboring uh, this fellow. It would be very surprising if they came up with the excuse that they didn't know that he was wanted. I mean, it was very well publicized. It was front and center in the media. And uh, so I think most people knew that he was out and about. This fellow and the shooting at the Sky Train was subject of discussion by many, many people in the community. So everybody knew about it. So an excuse that, that they didn't know that he was on the run kind of thing probably wouldn't work.
No. Uh, how does it change as far as the investigation and the amount of, of resources are, that are put into it when we're dealing with a shooting where an officer, and in this case it was a transit police officer, uh, was injured? Well, I think it, it, it's the same for any major case, Joe. Um, <clears throat> a police officer, um, a private citizen, whoever, the, the police uh, uh, put as many resources into it as they can to, um, you know, to try to apprehend the suspects. And they enter into what we call a major case management model. And so they have a, they have a major case management structure in place. So they have an investigation team. Then in this case, they would have had a search team looking for the, for the subject. They had their forensic, uh, forensic identification team and, um, and they had their file coordinators. They had a whole lot of things that were going on. There's many components uh, to this type of investigation. And as you said uh, a short time ago, the tactical team uh, were the ones who, uh, the emergency response teams were the ones who affected the arrest on this fellow. So there's all these different pieces to it. And you have a, you have a file commander, a team commander, sorry, that, that oversees this whole investigation. And um, there's a lot of... Um, a lot of time and effort that goes into it. And a police officer or a private citizen, it's the same type of um, major case management model that they utilize. It seems, though, that when it's a police officer involved, when it's a police officer that's injured, there is more of a response. And maybe it's just publicized more, but it does seem like there is more of a push to find the suspect. Well, I think that the the concern here would be that if they're prepared to... Uh, to shoot at a police officer or, or to harm a police officer, that they certainly would be quite prepared to harm somebody in the public as well. And, and so they become extremely dangerous, and I think that there's a huge concern. You know, it's one thing, you know, when they, when they take a shot at the police, obviously they have that total disregard for the public as well, and, and that becomes a huge concern. And, um, and in this particular case, this fella, as I said, he'd killed before, so um, he was a, a, an extreme risk to the public. Definitely. Um, and and the, the working of the different agencies uh, when they work together, as I mentioned off the top, he was, uh, this was something that happened in Surrey. He's been arrested in Burnaby. Uh, many forces involved in this. Does the cooperation, uh, does that, is that just automatic? Or how does the cooperation work to make sure that everybody is talking to everybody and has the same information and is on, is on the same page? Yeah, there's outstanding cooperation amongst all the police agencies. And probably first and foremost, what happened once that shooting had gone down, and I know this to be true, then many other police departments uh, responded to um, the SkyTrain station as well. And so then then the police, other police departments will offer resources and say, you know, uh, can we help you with with uh, regular routine patrols or general patrols? And so everybody gets into the loop. Uh, they have a communication system that works for all of the police agencies in British Columbia. So every all the police agencies know what's going on and they have a good sense for where the investigation is going. And there's um, extreme cooperation. Everybody gets on board and uh, and, and it's uh, very much a team effort. And, and the timing of this, uh, you had spoken about this before, saying that the, the, that prime window of 72 hours or less, it really comes into play. Here we have something. This was a crime that took place on Wednesday. Uh, we have an arrest of a suspect on a Sunday morning. Does that, does that kind of fit with, with how things like this generally unfold? 
It does. It it really does. And and so they will. Uh, the, the police will put through uh, commit a whole lot of resources to um, to this type of investigation. And and what happens is you get many many hot leads. And so you have to really get at these hard leads before they become, I suppose, cold leads. And and if you don't get to them sooner than later, then they then they become old news type of thing. And so they'll get a lot of information right at the outset. People will be calling. There'll be Crime Stoppers tips. There'll be all kinds of sightings. And so they police have to get all over it. As time goes on, then those calls and those tips and that information kind of. Uh, um, you know, it wanes, and then there's not there's so much activity. But so you've got to, while iron is hot, they have to strike, and and that's what they've done in this case. Clearly, they they've followed up all leads, and there's no question in my mind that with a with an investigation of this type and the the um, you know the media coverage that uh, there was a lot of information being forwarded to the police, and of course you have to follow every tip as well. So. So that fits right within the timeline. And one, one other question, and you mentioned his associates, how this would have been very difficult, uh, even though this is a suspect and police put out all of these photos saying he uh, he alters his appearance a bit. Uh, his associates, in some cases, wouldn't want to be around him or with him uh, with this happening, with this manhunt continuing. Uh, do police ever find in these cases uh, people on uh, who perhaps generally are uncooperative with law enforcement do actually help them out? Oh, oftentimes they will, for sure. One thing, though, that does enter into it, Jill, is the fact that um, obviously this guy's dangerous. He's killed before. And so if he showed up at perhaps some of his friends' place, they may be afraid to uh, tell him to leave. I mean, they may be afraid of him and, and concerns that they, they don't want to rile him up. And, and so they a lot of times have to cooperate. But oftentimes they... Um, they too will be. They will not cooperate with the police. They won't provide information to the police, and oftentimes they won't do it because they don't want to be seen to be a, a rat kind of thing, and so they won't tell on their buddies. I know, you know, in, in cases that I've worked on before, you'll get we'll, you know, look for a fugitive of this type, and uh, we'll go into the place and find them, and the people there will say, "Well, we didn't know." that he was wanted or that the police were looking for him. And oftentimes you'll find newspaper clippings and things on there on the table or in the place that show that, uh, you know, that they've been following the media coverage on the case. So, and that, 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 that type of thing really lends itself towards evidence of, of aiding and abetting a, a fugitive. Well, it's uh, good news that he's been arrested uh, this morning and uh, we're getting more information. Uh, Surrey RCMP will be uh, updating people uh, later on this morning around 10 o'clock. Uh, anything else about the case uh, that you wanted to share or from your point of view that sticks out for you? No, I think it's an outstanding job by the police and outstanding cooperation. And the emergency, when you're taking, when you're arresting somebody that's this dangerous and has a, 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 a track record, I think the emergency response team have done an excellent job and that there isn't anybody hurt. I mean, their job is to protect the public, to protect the police and to protect the suspect as well. And they've done that, it appears, in this case. And uh, congratulations to the police. They've done an outstanding job. And I need to say, Jill, as well, congratulations to the media. They covered this thing. They got the pictures out quickly. And they certainly worked with the with the police. And it was a total team effort, police, community, media working together. And ultimately, that led to the arrest. 
All right. Uh, we will leave it there. Uh, Jim Sesford, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, Jill. Have a good day.